The world champion Dodgers have some world champion podcasts. Don't miss a chance to catch up on Dodger Talk by podcasting it on the iHeartRadio app. Just search Dodger Talk for new episodes every weekday and after each game. AM 570 in LA Sports Icon. Fred Rogan is here tonight. Decades on your television covering Los Angeles sports. Fred Rogan, huge in Los Angeles. The Dean. I'm the Dean. Fred Rogan. Weekdays before Petros and Money. A USC All-American. USC's Rodney Pete. An NFL quarterback. Absolutely perfectly delivered by Rodney, Rodney Keith. It's available on the iHeartRadio app or on am570lasports.com. This is Rogan and Rodney. And we continue Fred Rogan and Rodney Pete on AM570 LA Sports. Uh, later on this hour, Rodney, I think this is pretty interesting. One of the top athletes in the world has come out and said, I don't want to talk to the media. Not that I don't like you as a person, media, as a group. But you know what? It's bad for my mental health. It's bad for me. It doesn't do me any good. It brings me down. It puts me in a place I don't want to be. So I don't want to talk to you anymore. Just don't want to do it. And when we tell you who this person is, you go, oh, all right, that's pretty interesting. One of the top athletes in the world. And I'm wondering if, as time goes on, You see more people saying that, Rodney. For mental health purposes, I'm not going to sit here and get badgered by you because that's what this person feels like. Right. They're badgered. What do you think of that? Well, first off, I I think that, you know, mental health has such a stigma on it, especially when it comes to sports or anyone in in the public eye, like a, a lot of things that, you know, people feel like athletes or or entertainers can't, you know, can't be human or don't have human issues. Um, that's number one. And it is a absolute real thing that if not treated, not taken care of, uh, could be very dangerous. And so, uh, and it's something that you can't, should not, and you cannot take lightly. And if there are things that trigger some of your depression or thoughts or, your mood swings or whatever internally, then you have to address it and uh, and talk about it and, and speak up about it. So if there is something that it triggers you and puts you in a certain state mentally, then uh, and, and your doctor is telling you that this is one of the things that you probably shouldn't do, then you got to listen to that. I have no problem with it. I think it's a fascinating topic, and we're going to get to that coming up here at the bottom of the hour. But the Lakers and Suns at Staples Center tonight. Let's bring on our insider from the Athletic, the esteemed, the esteemed Bill Orm is not ready. Oh, okay. All right. Well, we're we're, we're I thought Bill was on the line. Are we efforting, Bill? Yeah. You know, and I gave him this big build up. Yeah. I, you know, I was selling him big time. And what happened? I don't know. They said, "Hold on, we don't have him yet." Oh no. Well, get him on the line, Fred. All right. Is he okay now? All right. Here he is. Let's welcome on Bill Orm. Bill, thanks for jumping on. My pleasure, guys. Thanks for having me. You know, you got a little little pep in your step, a little bounce in your voice. You're excited about these playoffs, aren't you? You know what? Like, listen, I my first year covering the Lakers was the fall of 2013. And consider the state of the Lakers at that point. Dwight Howard had left. Steve Nash was barely hanging on to a playing career. Kobe Bryant had a torn Achilles. Mike D'Antoni was the coach. And the Lakers have not played a home playoff game since the spring before that. 
So I am kind of excited, guys. Like, it's a sunny day in Los Angeles. I've got the, I've got the blinds open in my house. Spent some time in my backyard this morning. I'm excited to see playoff basketball at Staples Center uh, for a Lakers game for the first time in my professional career. I mean, I feel like I've been covering the Lakers for, like, my entire life, and I've never covered a playoff game at Staples Center. So I am I'm excited to see it, even in these circumstances with, obviously, partial capacity. Yeah, don't you forget about that. I heard Anthony Davis talk about that uh, the other night. And because we forget about, even though they won it last year, they played it in the bubble. So it wasn't like you could see a playoff basketball as a Laker fan here in L.A. So it's got to be exciting for for people and for fans to finally be in that arena. What do you think it's going to be like, Bill? Well, I mean, I'm going to probably just use the play-in game against the Warriors as an indicator. And that was an incredible environment, you know, with 6,000 fans um, just, you know, you know, high-intensity crowd kind of from the beginning. And then, obviously, that was a game that came down the stretch. And, you know, in as much as you can blow the roof off a place with, you know, less than a third of capacity, um, I thought that that was, you know, I thought, I thought it was, you know, pretty great. And, you know, I, was, I had the privilege of, of going to Phoenix for the first two games of this series, and that was an incredible crowd. I mean, you talk about waiting for, a, for the playoffs. You know, Phoenix has had it even worse than the Lakers because you know, they hadn't been the postseason whatsoever in a decade. And so, you know, th- that was a really good crowd, uh, despite, you know, <laughs> despite it being Arizona and their, uh, their masking rules and, you know, testing and vaccination standards being a little different than ours here in Southern California. Uh, it was still pretty incredible to be in that, in that, in, you know, within that crowd. So, um, you know, I'm hyped up for the playoffs just because you're seeing it around the league, you know, you know, full houses and, you know, energized arenas, obviously some bad fan behavior. But in general, um, you know, it's been great to have fans back in the building. Yeah, well, full houses like in Phoenix, not a full house here. How much of a difference will the number of people in the crowd make? Well, I think, you know, in terms of, I guess, in terms of, uh, in terms of impact on the game, I think, you know, the Lakers probably are uh, pretty acclimated to it now after, you know, having played a couple playoff games. But in terms of just, you know, an impact of having, you know, the biggest crowd that we've seen in a Lakers game this year, I think there's going to be a real energy in the building. And I think it will, um, because it's been so long since we've seen a full house at Staples Center, you know, a third or whatever we're going to be at, 7,500 people, is going to feel like a full house because we haven't seen since of, 20, um, of 2020. And, you know, as someone who has sat through just dozens of games at an empty Staples Center where the only people sitting in the stands were, Rob Palinka and Kurt Rambis and like, you know, Anthony Davis's driver or something like that. Like it just, it's just a very, you know, sparse, you know, situation where you had two guys sitting in the 200 level running the soundboard to pipe in the fake crowd noise. And then some media members, you know, to be in a place that's going to be popping with your know, real stakes. I mean, even that Warriors game, you know, was a playoff game in a sense, but you know, that would have been, you know, that would have put the Lakers potentially in position for eighth. You know, it wasn't necessarily a win-or-go-home situation. And this isn't either, but it is, it's a real playoff series. And people understand the stakes of a playoff series, particularly when you're the seven seed trying to topple a two seed. So I think, um, I think it's going to be a lot of fun, and it's going to be, you know, I'm curious to see who's there also. You know, we haven't seen some of our favorite Lakers celebrities courtside. You know, my friend Diane Cannon owes me some brownies still, and she hasn't <laughs> had a chance to, to bake them up and bring them to me. I, I need to check in with Diane and see if she's coming tonight because I have, she, hasn't, I haven't, she has an order to fulfill for me. And then Jack Nicholson also we haven't seen at games. And so, you know, we saw some celebrities at that play-in game. Michael B. Jordan and Drake were there. Um, but I'm ready to get it back to, you know, some of the old Hollywood uh, figures that we're used to seeing. Andy Garcia, um, 
Rodney Pete, you know, the, the real heavy hitters. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'll be I'll be a few rows back from that from those courts. <laughs> um, <laughs> but yeah, I love it. You threw out the Diane Cannon. I love that. I love that that reference. Um, so we we saw the real. I guess Anthony Davis in Game Two, Bill. It, he he said it himself. I don't think he needed to hear everyone across the country saying he stunk it up in Game One and well, he needs to play better. Uh, he knew that. I think as soon as that game was over, that in order for the Lakers to have a chance to win, he needed to step up. And he and it and it was more than just his play, Bill. To me, it was it was his attitude. It was it was almost like he was playing angry. He was talking a little smack. Um. Is that what we're going to see going forward? At least I hope so. Yeah, someone kicked him in the butt so he could kick Jay Crowder in the... Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you, you know. Uh, no, I, I, I agree. I mean, it was just a much more aggressive AD. And it's it's so funny to me, in a not in a funny ha-ha way, but you go back to last year, the start of the playoffs, the Lakers lose game one to the Portland Trailblazers, and AD really put that loss on his own shoulders. Now, he had 28 points in that game, but he said he hadn't played up to his own standard, and he really did kind of the same thing in the two days between games one and two against the Blazers last year in the bubble. Kept to himself, kind of sulked, you know, watched the film, kind of really got very introspective, and then came out and had a huge game too. And so we've kind of seen him follow this pattern before. And, you know, listen, that's not what anybody remembers about Anthony Davis in the playoffs last year. It wasn't his game one disappointment against Portland. It was that he might have been the Lakers' best player over the course of the entire playoff run, hitting big shots, you know, turning in huge 40-point performances in, in critical games, starting at center in Game 6 of the finals. So I would look at what he did in Game 2 much more as a harbinger of what the rest of the playoffs might look like for Anthony Davis. Um, now, he would be the first to tell you, he said, you know, still too many jump shots in Game 2, wasn't getting to the rim enough. I do think there is still just a natural function of having Andre Drummond there in the middle that it makes it a little harder for AD to operate, but... You know, if Drummond's going to play like he did in game two, you probably live with that to some extent because I thought Drummond was a huge difference maker and probably had his most impactful game as a Laker when it mattered most in that, in that, in that win in Phoenix. So um, I think AD still has some room to improve. 18 of his 34 points came at the free throw line. I don't think he's going to get there that many times every night. You know, his, his production from the field was a little more limited. But, um, and I also thought that he did get, you know, some pretty favorable calls. Um, that, that sent him to the line. It wasn't like they were, he was just getting battered inside. There were a lot of you know, fairly light calls going his way, which is great. I mean, they're still fouls, but um, you know, I think he does need to take the aggression to an, even another level in game three to be able to kind of keep, keep that momentum rolling. Uh, you talk about Drummond, Bill, and I agree with you. I thought that was his best game as a Laker. So what happened? Did somebody just let a fire under him? I mean, he might have read my story saying it was time to shake up the big man rotation. Um, but I mean, this, <laughs> he, he subscribes to the athletic, like all good mm-hmm. sports uh, consumers. So, um, he, you know, the Andre Drummond thing has just been interesting to me since they signed him because it makes sense abstractly, you know, to go big and you get this big body you can, you know, can feast on the offensive boards and maybe gives you more of that lob threat that you lost when Dwight and JaVale left. But he's just a different player from Dwight and JaVale. He needs the ball in the post you know, to be, you know, to be as effective as he's been throughout his career, you know, post-ups. And he hadn't played with LeBron and AD enough to really kind of figure out how to get what he needed out of the game while also to sort of operate within their space. And he said something kind of awesome, I thought, after game two, where he said his job is just to go out there and be the bodyguard for LeBron and Anthony Davis. And I thought that was the perfect way of putting it. 
you know, it's his job to clean up the glass, you know, take care of kind of all the dirty work. But this is a guy who's averaged, you know, 20 and 10 throughout his career, is used to getting his looks offensively. And this, and I just have, am still a little unsure on how it all fits. But if it, if it works like it did on Tuesday, where he plays, you know, fewer minutes, you know, his minutes, you know, I think we're at like 23 or 24 in that game. But if, you know, if, he, if his minutes are kind of down, but he's maximizing those minutes, getting you a double-double, getting you five or six offensive rebounds, I mean, that is just tremendous effort. Um, I think the bigger thing with the big man the rotation was what you saw Frank Vogel do in the first quarter, which was go to Mark Gasol instead of Montrez Harrell. And, you know, this is sort of, you know, another dilemma the Lakers have faced all year as, and how Andre Drummond's arrival has sort of impacted things. But Montrez Harrell, who was their crown uh, – the crown jewel of their off season, their, you know, their, their top free agent acquisition um, is, is tough to play in the playoffs, particularly against a team like Phoenix. He defensively um, is not a guy who has really a place on the floor. And I thought Marc Gasol um, made more sense. He knocked down a three defensively, you know, the, the Suns tried to you know, spread him out and run in, in a way that he wasn't going to be able to keep up, but I thought he did okay. You're not a fan of the Marcus Saul move? No, here's the thing. And we talked about it yesterday. Oh, I like Marcus Saul, and I thought he hit a huge three. And I thought offensively he did a wonderful job of spreading the court. And his basketball IQ is off the chart, and I like him. What are you going to do instead? What are you going to do instead? Because you can't play Harold in, in that role. I know. And, and that's the problem. He defensively, they were running by him. I mean, they, they just were running by uh, him. Your only other potential. I mean, listen, this is, this is where you have to kind of do the best with what you can in the minutes that you have to have a backup center on the floor, unless you're just going to commit to playing Anthony Davis there for every minute that Andre Drummond isn't, isn't on the floor. And there's an argument for that. I mean, Anthony Davis is your best, is probably your best center out of all these centers that the Lakers have available. Anthony Davis is the best, but we've really seen the Lakers go to that more in crunch time. Although it was interesting to me that they closed with Andre Drummond in game two. We haven't really seen that. We've seen them, We've seen them close with AD at the five. So, I mean, that just speaks to the impact that Drummond was having. But I think, you know, I think the answer is you sort of, you play Drummond his minutes, you hodgepodge together based on the matchup between Marcus Saul, Montrez Harrell, maybe a little Markeith Morris. He played in the first quarter on, in game two. And then in the fourth quarter, you, you, you ram, you know, Anthony Davis down, down their throats. And, I, and they didn't do that in game two. They didn't need to. But that's still the Lakers' most lethal uh, center matchup. Yeah, no doubt. One other thing I, I saw in game two was, you know, we, we know LeBron is, is going to be LeBron. We've said that over the last couple of years, and we just, you know, as you mentioned, AD was probably the best player in the bubble last year. They don't win unless AD asserts himself. But what I saw LeBron just, you know, talking about leadership, and there was one particular play late in the game where he passed to wide open Caldwell Pope, who made the extra pass. And then there was a timeout. He got all over Caldwell Pope about not taking that shot. Um, and I was thinking about that, and we talked about it yesterday. And that, to me, is the difference with the Lakers superstars and the Clippers because I don't see anyone on the Clippers having that conversation with someone like LeBron had the conversation with Caldwell Pope. You know what was incredible to me was that was such a fiery moment where you look at LeBron you didn't know better, you know. You think he's about ready to, you know, trade him to, you know, the to a minor league team in Anchorage based on that exchange. <laughs> yeah. And then you get you you wait an hour. He's post game. You you hop on Instagram and Contavious Caldwell Pope is posting that clip himself and saying, "This is what leadership looks like." 
I mean, that's what it's like to play with LeBron James. I mean, he's not for everybody, and he is is a um, you know he's a demanding superstar. But I mean, I look, at, I, I would not be surprised if Contavious Caldwell Pope comes out and is is really aggressive in Game Three. And I know he you know was aggressive in Games One and Two, but he missed shots and then he kind of stopped shooting. And he, I thought he gave up, you know, passed up some really good opportunities. Theoretically, ostensibly, he's the Lakers' probably best floor spacer, at least with that first unit. He's the guy you want shooting it. So he needs to be taking more than four shots. If he's 0 for 4, he needs to keep shooting. Um, And if he doesn't make them, you know, you kind of live with that, but that's his role on this team. And I thought he was too passive in game two, which was too bad because otherwise he had, you know, a really nice game defensively, had some great moments on Devin Booker. And I'm sure you guys have discussed, but I mean, you know, he was plus 19, which was best on the team. And I, 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 it's it's one of those things where he had a good game. His only job is not to make threes, but it is half of his job, three and D. And just imagine, you know, what that plus minus could have looked like if he would have gotten out of his head and knocked down some threes. But we've, you know, seen KCP do this. And this is kind of part of his, his arc with the Lakers. And you can even go back to earlier this season. You know, he had a great game at Milwaukee toward the end of January. And then he had a month-long swoon where he was shooting in the 20s. And it just, and he went, at one point I'd, I'd done, he'd only had like one point in the season where he'd made multiple threes in back-to-back games. And then he finally got hot again in March and he had like six games where he made multiple threes and then he fell off again. And he, he's kind of in that, that, in that swoon right now, but it's being brought to his attention. People are in his face. It's now very public that he needs to be more assertive. And when we see KCP be more assertive, good things tend to happen. So I think you know, you'll see him get up, you know, you know, far more shots tonight and probably make a few of them. Uh, Bill, talking about LeBron James, I had this observation yesterday. I'm curious to hear what you think. So, you know, it's exciting to see him turn around and hit a fallaway three. It's exciting to see him pull up and shoot from distance. But the thing that that's telling me is when he is doing that now, he's doing that more than going inside, than taking the ball to the hole. And I'm wondering if it's because it's a conscious choice on his part or it's because he can't get to the basket like he used to. Maybe it's the ankle. Maybe it's age. What do you think? Oh, it's probably all that, Fred. I mean, you know, we all experience the, 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 uh, the fallout of age and you had a, you know, a, a kind of a bum ankle on top of it. I think that LeBron isn't at 100%. He's not, you know, as explosive as he was. I, you know, obviously he has been far more dependent on that, on that, uh, three-point jumper in, the, in these playoffs than we would than we saw last year. Um, you know, relatively small sample size was Frank Vogel's answer to that. You know, he was saying let's not get too caught up in what's happened in two games. But you know, there's a there's some context to consider. The fact that he's coming off the worst injury of his career, the fact that he is 36 years old, the fact that this season has been so condensed. You know, I think all of that. You know, is it, you know, contributes to it. But I, I, I agree with you. I mean, the Lakers are winning games when LeBron is making heroic shots. You know, they beat the Warriors because LeBron knocked down an insane 34-foot three-pointer. They beat the Suns in game two, really, I would argue, because Chris Paul is hurt and because LeBron and AD made a couple of really tough shots that they really weren't making earlier in the game. You know, LeBron's falling out of bounds three, you know, was just ridiculous. Like, that's not the sort of shot we see him take even you know his threes are all kind of from the top of the key step back that was off a screen you know in the corner not a shot we're used to seeing LeBron make often whatsoever or even attempt so I think that there is a little bit of 
you know, a little concern of how long can you rely on this? Like what makes LeBron great is getting downhill and, and creating for others. And we haven't seen him get downhill. My, actually, my colleague, Zach Harper, wrote a really good story about that earlier this week that people should check out. Um, just can LeBron still get downhill in the way that we're accustomed to seeing him uh, in the postseason? And, you know, it didn't happen in game two. And the Lakers were fine. And that, and that tends to you know, cover up you know, any blemishes. You know, the, the win kind of solves all. But there are still things that you have to kind of look at with the Lakers and say, yes, they're 1-1. Yes, AD and LeBron both played very well, but are they, um, you know, are they playing like a championship team yet? And I, I don't think you can say they're quite there um, for that reason, among others. Bill, we talked uh, <laughs> briefly off air, and you, you were excited about the playoffs and, and, and watching these, these playoffs tonight and, and, and going forward, and so am I. I mean, I'm, I'm a product that grew up in the, in the 80s, so I'm a big Laker fan then with the, with the Showtime Lakers, you know, was a pro in the 90s, big Jordan fan in the Bulls, and, and in the 2000s with the Lakers' resurgence. But when you look back at, you know, a lot of those – those times in that era, it was, you know, you kind of knew for a period of time it was going to be Boston or Detroit coming out of the East. It was going to be Chicago coming out of the East. You knew it was going to be the Lakers and maybe Houston coming out of the West. But now when you look at this series, and I don't know if it's the shortened season, it's coming off the bubble, it's it's all the teams has gotten competitive, but we have some competitive playoff series, and it's I can't remember where from top to bottom it's kind of been – you wouldn't be surprised – with the exception of maybe a couple teams, that anybody gets to the, the conference finals. Yeah, I mean, there are, you know, four or five teams right now that you could see getting to the conference finals, depending on, on the breaks. And, and you know, listen, the Clippers being in trouble is a huge part of that. You know, the, if the Clippers are not there in round two for, um, for the Jazz, you know, like that, you know, makes the path to the conference finals a lot easier for Utah than we might have expected. Um, you know, the Portland-Denver series is tremendous. Um, I could see either of those teams, you know, getting hot and getting past Phoenix or the Lakers if it came to that, frankly. So, I mean, it is it is a really um, exciting time in the West where you don't know who is going to come out of it. And it's it's very different from the middle of the decade when it felt pretty locked in that, you know, Golden State was going to was going to be there from the West and the Cavaliers were going to be there from the East. And generally, these eras are defined by teams that, you know, can reliably be there each year and you know, the Lakers might be the, that team of this era, but it isn't, it isn't, we haven't, you know, we haven't seen it in consecutive years yet. And that obviously the Lakers feel somewhat vulnerable this year. Um, but that said, I mean, the Lakers to me keep picking up, you know, breaks along the way. I mean, like the path kind of keeps opening up for the Lakers more and more, you know, and, and if, if it's Portland in the second round or frankly, Portland or Denver in the second round, I think are teams that the Lakers can beat. And then, you know, in the conference finals, we've looked at, well, finally we'll get that Lakers Clippers conference finals that we've been waiting for. You know, I, I, I doesn't look like the Clippers are going to get out of the first round. You know, talk about self-inflicted wounds, tanking your way into the four seed just so you can get your butts kicked, you know, you know, yet again by Luka Doncic yeah. feels like an all-time blunder. Um, I so I I just it, it, the the West is wide open, but I think that's a good thing uh, for the Lakers, maybe more so than any other team. All right, well, Bill, thanks for coming on. Enjoy tonight's game, and uh, we will talk to you again soon. I hope that's true, Fred. I always enjoy it. <laughs>
Easy, Bill. You too. Thanks, guys. Yeah, all right. We will talk to him again soon. See? Yes, we will. You know why? We're, we're the sunshine guys. We like to make everybody's life a little little. The brighter. sunshine guys. Okay, Fred. That's what we are. Let's get t-shirts made up. The sunshine guys? Yeah. Yeah, that'll happen here. They'll make us shirts. Sure they will. <laughs> sure they will. How many times have I said, hey, can we get some shirts for the show? No. No. Oh, today I'm wearing an old L.A. Galaxy Herbalife jersey. Love it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, because we'll wear anything that's free, basically. I'm not going to lie to you. You know, when you work in radio, Rodney, I don't know if you feel this way. You send me a shirt, I'll wear it immediately. I'll put it right on. I'll wear it every We've day. We've seen it. I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> Sadly, you have. Yes, we have. <laughs> you have seen that. Yes, I can uh, attest to that, Fred. Oh. That is absolutely true. <laughs> that is true. Uh, okay, uh, Naomi Osaka is the top female athlete in the world right now. She's a tennis player, highly successful. And she has said something that I think a lot of athletes are thinking about, Rodney, but she came out and said it. And I, we need to get into it next because what happens is if, if what she says is true, and it happens, it's going to change the way all sports are covered. So we'll get to that coming up. Has to do with mental health. All right, we'll give you the story, give you our thoughts, and see if you agree. Pete, Pete, those are my guys, my guys. Hey! Oh, yeah. We're back. Yes. Go ahead, J.O. Jeffrey O. Rodney P. Fred Rogan. Throwback Thursday. Loving it. Loving it. Let's go, Freddie. You know, the one thing those of us in the media hate is when we have no opportunity, no access at news conferences. Because that's really the media's job, right? You talk to people. Now, you develop relationships, you might get them one-on-one. But more often than not, after major events, it's got you got the cattle call and everybody from every media outlet is in a big room and the principal speaks. So Naomi Osaka is one of the top, well, she is the top female tennis player. She's actually uh, a four-time major champ. Now she's ranked number two in the world. Uh, she's one of the great female athletes on the planet. And uh, they're getting ready for the French Open. And Naomi Osaka, Naomi Osaka says, you know what? I don't really want to be at these news conferences. Uh, I'm not going to be participating in any of the news conferences. Well, that's a problem, right? Because she is one of the top athletes in the world, one of the top players in the world. The media needs to write about her. She could win the whole thing. And she said, I'm not going to talk. I'm just not going to be there. And here's why. She's often felt that people have no regard for athletes' mental health. And it rings very true whenever I see a press conference or partake in one, she said. We're often sat there and asked questions that we've been asked multiple times before or asked questions that bring doubt into our minds, and I'm just not going to subject myself to people that doubt me. She shared video clips of Venus Williams and Marshawn Lynch, presumably to emphasize the fact that the relationship between athletes and the media is a problem. She doesn't want to put herself in a position because of her mental health to have to sit there, defend herself, justify herself, answer questions over and over. So they can be fined up to 20 grand for skipping a news conference at a major tournament. And Osaka said she hoped her fines would be put toward a mental health charity. Now this strikes right into the core of the media. 
So you know this is something the media is going to be upset about. If athletes decide we're not going to talk to you, it is required by the NBA, the NFL, Major League Baseball, uh, you have to attend these news conferences. Mm -hmm. You played. What do you think when she says, this is bad for my mental health? Well, I turn around on you, Fred. You're the media. You've been in those situations. And, and what do you feel when an athlete doesn't want to talk? Um, she cited uh, Venus Williams, but she also cited Marshawn Lynch. You remember Marshawn Lynch? Uh, because it was required, and his famous state quote was, I'm just here because I don't want to get fined. Uh, but he never really said anything. Uh, it never got anything, even though they continued to try. All up until the time he retired, they keep, kept trying to, to get him to say something, but he wouldn't. Um, so I put it on you first to say, you know, what do you, how do you feel as a member of the media for such a long time when an, an athlete or how you feel about her saying something like this? All right. So should I put on my news cap, my television news cap? I'll wear that to start. Yeah. That's the cap you wear. You worn it for a year. So, yeah. Okay. It's unacceptable. You have an obligation because really when we cover sports, you know what we're doing? We're just giving you free publicity. That's all. You're not paying for this. We talk about your brand. We talk about your product. And in doing so, we promote it. We give people a platform and a venue to discuss it, to keep it relevant. So, yeah, I think if you do that for a living, you probably go, you need to answer the questions. Now, I'm going to but I'm going to flip it on you, Rodney, a little bit, okay? I'm not so sure, and, and my brethren would not like to hear this. I'm not so sure it's that necessary anymore. And here's why. When I started in the business, there was nothing called social media. In social media, you deal directly with your client, with your consumer. If you're an athlete, you're a brand. You know what? You can talk directly to your consumer, to your client. You can tell them what you want to tell them. You can avoid things you don't want to discuss. You can connect with people, and you don't need the media as the messenger anymore. I'm not telling you anything you don't know, because you've already seen it. It's online. It's an alert. It's on Twitter. It's on Instagram. Athletes can talk directly to the people that they want to talk to and that are interested in them. That's why, quote, unquote, building brands is so important. Now, what should the media do in today's world? The media provides checks and balances. So an athlete can say whatever they want and talk directly to their client, to their customer. The media has to provide perspective, checks and balances. That being said, Rodney, there are people listening to the show right now that only want to hear from the people they want to hear from, and they don't care what anybody else thinks. They don't care. If LeBron James says something, that's gospel. If I can pick it apart, they don't want to hear it because he is talking directly to his customer. So I understand her saying, I'm not going to do this for my mental health. She's basically saying, I want to stay focused. I don't want any doubt. By talking to you, I doubt myself, and then I can't perform as well. It's also a millennial thing. It's a younger people thing. They don't want to be questioned. They just want to live. So do I get what she's saying? Yeah. But my question to you then is this. Mental health. Is talking to the media in those giant settings bad for a player's mental health? Depends on the person. Absolutely depends on the person. Everybody's different. Everybody's, 
emotional, mental makeup is 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 different. Some guys are sensitive. We talk about this all the time. Uh, you know, in whatever workplace you're in, but but as we talk about it in sports, for me, there were certain guys that were emotionally, mentally uh, fragile that you couldn't, I couldn't yell at, I couldn't scream and get in their face and and talk to them a certain way because you may lose them and lose them, meaning that they would shut down, go into a, a shell and not want to perform. Um, and then there's other guys I could cuss out on a regular basis and they would respond to that. So everyone is, everyone is absolutely, uh, is, is, is different. And, and I, I'll disagree that it's a millennium thing. I don't think, I think if you go back in time with athletes and when it started with media press conferences after sports games and events that nobody really liked them because I think sometimes they're the, the athletes are portrayed in a different light. Um, and you can go on for, you know, a minute or two describing something. And that's not what comes out usually, you know, back in the day, that's not what came out in the, the, uh, next day paper. Yeah. And, and so there was a, there's always been a distrust from athlete to media, uh, situation going on, but I am not the one or no, no one media person or anyone is the one to question someone else's mental state, mental health, because it's a real thing. And it's been such a a topic that has been swept under the rug and kept in the shadows for such a long time. And people still don't want to really, really address it. And you're seeing that more and more, you know, it's, it's a, it's a stigma. I think when, you know, even up until last year, as, as we talked about, and Paul George talked about, I just mentally, I was going through it. I was, it was in not a very good place in the bubble and people took it as being soft and weak and all those type of things that you heard when he came clean, Kevin Love came clean and, and people looked at it as, as being soft and, and weak. And so I, I look at it as a, as a real thing. Is it, is it, yes. Is it an obligation? Yeah. It comes with the territory. And it comes, you know, it comes with playing a sport. But I and I think for her, because it is an individual sport, it makes it even more difficult because you can't go, okay, uh, Tom Brady's not talking. He doesn't talk to the media, but we can we can talk to the wide receiver. We can talk to the running back. We can talk to the defensive back or somebody else and get the story of, of what happened. But in tennis, it's an individual sport, so there's no one else for the media to go talk to and address. And and maybe there's a different way to handle it. Say, I'm not going to go to the press conference, but I will answer ten questions. I'll I'll write them down and I'll have an answer for all those ten questions. But I'm not going to sit in front of a podium where people are firing off questions. Why did you do this? What what were you thinking there? Um because I want to protect my mental state and I'm I'm not as mentally strong as some of the other people. Remember, remember, the media has always been the messenger. That's why the media existed. That's why the media got paid. The media was the messenger. The media doesn't but, really need to be the But the problem messenger. is the media has not always been the true messenger. That, that's fair. But I'm saying, the, the line, don't shoot the messenger, the old line, well, because the media was the messenger. Ted Sobel, friend of mine, been doing this a long time, sends me a text. Osaka should be fined, then warned, and a third time suspended from being allowed to play in any tournament because it is her responsibility to the tour and their customers 
and their fans. Yep, you can make that argument. But I could, Ted, with all due respect, and we've been doing this a long time, make this argument. She can do all of that individually on her social media. She can tell the story of what she did in that match. There's no checks and balances. It's only her side. Trevor Bauer has his own YouTube channel. His own YouTube channel. He can say whatever he wants. And the people interested are going to watch that. My kids do. There's no checks and balances. Do we live? We live in a world. <laughs> yeah, but you say that as if there's all, there's checks and balances on the no. media. Look what we go through in the media and just outside of sports and in the political arena that we just lived through for the last four years. There's no checks and balances on any side. So to suggest that oh, only on the athlete side there's no checks and balances because he wants to tell his story on social media, which has changed the game. Uh, he wants to tell the story of what happened in the game on his perspective and not let it get clouded because somebody wanted to frame a question or frame right. a topic a certain right. way. Right. No, I'm going to say it to my 2 million followers. Right. And if you want to hear what happened in the game, I'll give it to you. If I'm Trevor Bauer on my YouTube channel, if I'm Naomi, I'll, you'll hear from it on my Instagram story. I'll tell you about what happened in the game, but I'm not going to sit there and be berated by somebody um, that wasn't out there playing. See, and, and that's my point. I actually agree with you which is bad for me. <laughs> I agree with you, which is bad for my business <laughs> because my business will change. Well, it has changed. Anybody that does it the way they used to, nobody's watching it anyway because it's changed and you have to adapt. But when I say checks and balances, and you make a great point, what checks and balances? What checks and balances? Everybody's on one side or the other of everything, and it's hard to get checks and balances. And the checks and balances oftentimes are what the one side wants you to know. They'll dig in on that. All I'm saying is this. Um, I get it. I get it. It's bad for my business, but I get what she's saying. I think you can communicate directly with people, your customer, your consumer, through social media. I think it makes the media's job very difficult. If nobody will talk to a writer, the writer's got nothing to write about, right? Just think about that. So they're not going to be very pleased. If she doesn't show up, I need to write a story and I got nothing. Yeah. She's not here. That's, but you know what? That's kind of on the media to figure out what to do next. Actually, I should be completely against this Rodney and I'm really okay with it. Yeah. But there's, see, you cut me off. That's why I hate the media, Fred. <laughs> you know, when we come back, Kevin, I want to do a shout out real quick. Okay. Do that when we come back. AM 570 KLAC 987 KYSR HD2 Los Angeles available anywhere using the iHeartRadio app. I mean that is just sad. <laughs> sad sack of the day. Oh that's right. We're going to do it real fast. We're going to do it. World. Real fast. I know. The world. Surprise, I snuck it in today, huh? Yeah, yeah, you did sneak it in. Sad Got sack. Mix that in the heartbeat. I know you would have. That's why I didn't tell you. Memphis Grizzlies guard Grayson Allen, former Jazz draft pick, struggled against his former team last night, scoreless, 0-6 shooting in Game 2's loss. The win tied the series at a game apiece. Game 3 scheduled for Saturday, sad sack of the day, Grayson Allen, Memphis Grizzlies. Quickly, got to do a shout-out. Got to do a shout-out to Steve Henson. 
Not the Muppet Steve Henson, may he rest in peace. That's Jim Henson. Oh, yeah, that's right. Guy. Anyway, Steve Henson, writes for the Times. So I pick up the paper this morning. I don't know. I pick up the paper this morning, and uh, I, I don't pick up the paper. I read it online. I haven't read a okay. newspaper in 20 years. So I read it online. What is actually accurate in this story you're about to tell? Fred? I, I, There's like three things in one 30 seconds that you just said that weren't that's accurate. Why, that's why you don't trust the media. Right. That's right. Exactly. That's, all right. Steve Henson of the LA Times. Anyway, I pick up this story, and it's a first-person account of a guy who's an umpire. And he's a high school baseball umpire. You know, that interests me because I wanted to be an umpire at one point. Yes. I read the story. It's about Steve. He writes for the Times, and he goes out, and he umpires. I think it's the Coastal League, high school baseball, Malibu, that area out there. And he's an Uh umpire in high school baseball. And he's loved it. And he's done it for years. And apparently, he's pretty good at it. So I said, I'm giving you a shout-out today. So if you're out there, and you see one of the umpires, it's Steve Henson. Give him the business for us. Give him the business. When you say pretty good, he's pretty good at it. Pretty good umpire. Isn't that subjective? Well, I'm saying he's pretty good. Yeah. No, you know what? It is subjective. He's great. <laughs> he's great. But good for you, Steve. Not a way to get out there and work. <laughs> Santa Monica High may say he's not. That's why we didn't ask Santa Monica High, Rodney. <laughs> Okay, FS1 Basketball Insider, one half of the odd couple, Chris Broussard, is going to join us next hour. We're getting serious now about the playoffs tonight. When we come back, a lot of stuff has happened today, and we'll get you caught up to date with its lit.